believe it or not, um, uh, that was a big deal during the pandemic was many health information exchanges, despite their missions and what they did within their, within their state, um, could not convince the state health department to share the immunization records with the health information exchange. It's what we call a policy barrier. They just, they have it, they could technologically share it, but for whatever reason, their policy was we don't or can't. Amazing. The, sa the same thing is true at the VA. So any, any vaccines given by the VA, there's federal policy that prevents them from sharing that immunization record with the state immunization registry, the, the state department of health, which is ludicrous in 2022 from my perspective that we still have this. There are efforts to change that, but that's another example of a policy that's been on the books for decades that pre literally prevents the sharing of data, even though technologically we could make it happen. Hello, and welcome to Informatics in the Round, a podcast designed to help everyone become a part of the dialogue about topics in biomedical informatics. I'm Kevin Johnson, physician and informatics researcher at the University of Pennsylvania, at KB Johnson MD on Twitter, and all over the web. My co-host, S.T. Bland, is a senior project manager at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Well, this episode promises to be incredibly informative for most of us. If there was nothing learned from the pandemic, it was at least the importance of data in helping us track disease progression and disease prevalence. I can't tell you how many times we went from place to place and the first thing we did was pull up the heat map about how prevalent COVID was in the community where we were going. And I think we're not alone on that one. It also helped a lot of the states manage vaccine compliance within specific regions. Health Information Exchange was vital to many of the public health organizations around the country. And our speakers today were front and center during the pandemic, as well as, in some cases, decades before the pandemic, evangelizing this technology for the rest of us. We'll hear from them, and we'll discuss both what Health Information Exchange is and what health information hubs could be doing for us going forward. I learned a ton during this podcast, including the leading excerpt, but there's much more covered by our guests, and I hope you enjoy it. ST and I are proud to introduce you to three guests during this episode. Brian Dixon is a professor of Indiana University's Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health and a world expert on public health information ecosystems, including how things are accomplished and the information or tech used to accomplish them. John Kansky is president and CEO at Indiana Health Information Exchange in Indianapolis, which is arguably the exemplar for health information exchanges around the world. Morgan Honey is executive VP of Contexture an IT services and consulting group in Denver, and CEO of CSRI, the Consortium for State and Regional Interoperability, as well as CEO of the Colorado Regional Health Information Organization, or CORIO. Let's get to it. These guys have a lot to say, and it's time for you to hear it from them. I'm 
I'm going to introduce each person by saying a little bit about who they are, and then you'll get a chance to hear their voices, and then they can correct all the things that I got wrong from LinkedIn. So I'll start with Brian Dixon. Brian is professor at Indiana University and at the Regenstrief Institute and is the Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health professor, as well as a world expert known to most in biomedical informatics on public health information ecosystems, including both how things are accomplished in the public health ecosystem and how information or technology is used to accomplish them. Hey, Brian. Hey, Kevin. I get that right? You got it right. All so. right. I'm one for one. <laughs> John Kansky is president and CEO of the Indiana Health Information Exchange in, of course, Indianapolis. Uh, IHI is arguably the exemplar for health information exchanges around the world, and John's been a major part of that effort for quite a few years now. Hey, John. Morning, how you doing? I'm doing well. How close did I get to the, your uh, actual title? Yeah, that's actually, that's exactly right. And for the purposes of uh, what we're talking about today, um, I'll add that I have some affiliations to Sequoia Project, eHealth Exchange, Regan Street Institute, uh, Consortium for State and Regional Interoperability, and the Civitas Networks for Health. And it's just not, uh, uh, just uh, kind of how complicated and connected this ecosystem is. You're not bored of being on boards, are you? Uh, I can't, I can neither confirm nor deny that I am tired of being on board. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Morgan Honey is Executive VP of Contexture, which is an IT services and consulting group in Denver, and also is CEO of the CSRI, which stands for the Consortium for State and Regional Interoperability, as well as CEO of CoRio, which is the Colorado Regional Health Information Organization. Hey, Morgan. Hey, Kevin. Did and, I get that uh, right? You did, and for just like John, for purposes for this discussion, um, uh, Contexture is the health information exchange that serves Colorado and Arizona. Um, Corio is a, a subsidiary of Contexture, and um, prior to our merger last year uh, to become Contexture, I, I uh, served as the CEO of Corio for for the past seven years. So, um, and much like John, <clears throat> a lot of different board uh, relationships and uh, various things in the industry. So great to be here this morning. Thank you very much. Glad you could be here. ST Bland, I think everybody who listens to this podcast knows ST, who is now not going by Sarah, but going by ST. Yep. Uh, she explained that on the last episode. Um, and she helps me run this podcast. She's also the senior project manager at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and is really an expert in precision medicine and the data that are attached to systems like all of us that inform precision medicine. Yeah, and uh, I can disclose that I'm on no boards, so. <laughs> You're doing it right. Yeah. She's, she's neither boring nor on a board. Exactly. As you'll see through her irreverent humor, which occasionally makes an appearance. Every once in a blue moon. Every once in a blue moon. So I'm really excited about this, this, this conversation today. Um, as many of us probably know, there's no way that you can be involved with biomedical informatics and not be aware of the need for interoperability and health information exchange, whether it's health information exchange, the verb, which is exchanging data, or health information exchange, the noun. Um, everybody also knows that the title of this podcast is Informatics in the Round. Typically, that involves a musician, but we had so many people here who were experts 
that I thought the real round today needed to be the ball that we were going to pass back and forth between each other talking about information exchange. So if you're okay with that, I, I have a first question that I'm hoping we can answer and I'll, I, I know this group is not going to need a lot of prompting. So I just want to get us started and then hear what we have to talk about. So health information exchange is obviously a serious and important issue today. But I'd be willing to bet you that most of the people listening don't fully appreciate either why it's so hard or why it's so serious. Anybody want to take on explaining to my mom why she should care about health information exchange? Uh, I'll, I'll uh, take this is John. Um, so first, I can't resist saying that my, my mom is uh, 90 um, and she still tries clipping articles for me about uh, healthcare and healthcare information technology. Um, and I would say that it's pretty cute, but she does a reasonable job sometimes of latching on to meaningful things. There you uh, go. But to answer to answer your question, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of the standard uh, elevator pitch that we've probably all been doing for uh, a decade or so. Um, you know, healthcare is just is is notoriously fragmented. Um, we all have personal experiences with uh, uh, data and, or information. It, it really is about the information. Uh, especially when you get down to the personal experience, not being there when you need it. It's the lab result that de delayed uh, your physician appointment for your mom, or it's the um, uh, missing piece of information that you, you know in hindsight changed uh, the, the course of treatment for you or someone in your family. Uh, and so that's why it's important. Um, why is it hard? Um, uh, the, uh, those who aren't in our business um, don't necessarily appreciate the technological complexities and the uh, challenges of, of uh, everybody calling the data elements the same thing at different organizations when you try to exchange them electronically. But people do have some sense of how complicated the healthcare system is just trying to uh, get, get your um, uh, insurance uh, claims uh, paid and interpreting your end of bill or whatever gives you some sense of the complexity of healthcare. The tech, adding the technological component just makes it, it more complicated and therefore difficult. Just to add on to that, so I think John gave a great uh, introduction to the topic, but I think there's, there's two things I would point out. Why it matters now, uh, or there, there's, I think there's two reasons why it's probably even more important in 2022 than it has been in the past. One is that over time, we have seen on the health insurance market side, a number of changes to what's covered and what's not and which providers are in network and what's not, right? So even as my as my mom ages and I'm helping her navigate the complex healthcare system, you know, she is now, because of transparency laws, calling healthcare providers and saying, what's going to be covered? How much is it going to cost me? And, and she has to go to providers who are in different uh, health system networks in order to have things done. Like there's one health system network where her, the main doctor specialist that she wanted to see is covered, but the nurse in his practice and the anesthesiologist in his practice is not part of her network, right? So this is going to become more of an issue as patients actually begin to 
kind of pre-screen doctors and right. figure out who's gonna who's in their network and who's gonna be covered and who's not. So uh, I think the opportunity for even more fragmented data going forward will will grow. And then the second thing is, is that in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, it became very obvious that the public health components of our health system are even further behind than healthcare uh, delivery organizations. And so we saw many instances where lab results were being provided from clinics to public health via fax machines, where information was being manually recorded, it was being electronically recorded in the healthcare delivery system, but being manually reported to public health. Yep. And so as we come out of the pandemic, uh, there's a, many efforts and, and ideas to say that's probably not where we should be in 2022. We need to have better interoperability or connectivity between the healthcare delivery part of our system and the public health part of our system. Okay, Ryan, so I get I'll... the feeling that I got to say I get the feeling that you and John's mothers should be getting together to create like this information resource about billing and information mapping and the two things that you just described. And I was actually gonna say that I'm a little jealous because my mom just retired last year from being a case manager and a clinical documentation specialist in hospitals. And so uh, we talk about this all the time and um, she tells me how wrong I am. So uh, <laughs> if you ever wanna swap. Uh, so, but I wanna take it back a little bit more. Um, first of all, I'm thinking about the folks who think that they're providers are already all connected. Their nephrologist is talking to their GI and to their PCP and to their dermatologist over at this practice. So let's take us back. Why aren't we there already? Uh, I mean, I, th <clears throat> I think the vast majority of people who have interfaced with the healthcare system probably have some level of assumption that that connectivity already exists. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you walk into your doctor's office, you're lucky if they look you in the eye at all because they're documenting everything in the computer and computers, you know, from from the 21st century perspective are all connected, right? Um, and so I think that the general perception is that it's not a problem because all the information is in the computer. Um, to John's point and to Brian's point, um, it's, it's way more complex than that. You've got um, extensive policy considerations that can vary from state to state. Um, you know, my organization works in Arizona and Colorado, and um, there are different state statutes that govern the way that we exchange data, both in Arizona and in Colorado. Um, I know that I know that in order for a good podcast, somebody has to be a provocateur, um, and I know that with me and John on this uh discussion that you're not gonna run short in that category but I as i as about, i expected <laughs> i was thinking about this over the weekend kevin and it, it it's you know like you look at <clears throat> i'm a i'm a big car guy and so you look at like the the evolution of electric vehicles and the the biggest challenge or one of one of the biggest technical challenges in this industry is um, like electric vehicles, um, if you are pulling up to a charging station, if every different model of electric vehicle had a different plug, the the network of charging in the United, you know, anywhere would not work. And that's that that is a big technical barrier that we deal with in the interoperability space. Is that 
in 2004, 2008, when EMRs, electronic medical record systems were being pushed out, um, you know, there were a lot of incentives for providers to adopt that technology. The challenge is, is that everybody, all of all the entire industry developed their own technology. And even though we have standards, um, it is still very much like having an electric vehicle with a very custom plug that needs its own charging station. Um, and and so you you constantly are driving around looking for where's my plug, where's my plug. Um, and so that that's the analogy that I would throw out is why it's why technically we have some challenges, but we could go on all day long, John. Uh, and, and listening to our conversation, and I think it is a, a decent uh, explaining of the complexities and the why it doesn't work already, but I want to acknowledge that um, uh, in our own um, uh, clunky American free market way, <laughs> we've kind of been stumbling forward uh, for uh, a good decade now, and and that's kind of picking up pace. Now, uh, putting Tefka aside, I don't know if you want to even talk about what the heck that is, but that's the government getting into what I described as, as a free market attempt to make this problem less bad. Um, there have been lots of uh, moves forward. HIEs are getting better and stronger. EA electric health, uh, electronic health record software is uh, um, uh, with encouragement from the federal government is getting more interoperable um, and more data is moving around in more different ways. Now, as we do in, uh, in, the, in America, we're trying 17 things all at the same time um, and uh, arguing about which one's the right one uh, and creating an overly complicated ecosystem that kind of sort of works, at least works way better than it did uh, five years ago. Yeah. And just to briefly add on, I would say that there are, to specifically respond to UST, I think there are pockets where there is some connectivity. So some people may actually have connectivity. So if you are, for example, a veteran and you're in the VA healthcare system and you only see VA-based providers and you have three or four of them, they are probably connected. Now, the challenge is, of course, as soon as you go to a non-VA provider, now, of course, you've introduced more complexity. But there are pockets, like if you're in a metro area and all three of the providers that you see are part of the same healthcare system, they may actually be connected. But we know that for many people, the challenges come when they have acute events or they're traveling, or they, you know, are simply trying, or or their or their insurance changes, and then they have to sort of pick a new provider, and then they start to run into a lot of these problems that we're talking about. So you the all fact did very good answering that. I'm very they proud did of you a, all. they did a wonderful job. Morgan just like teed it all up and just sat there and watched it. You know, it that electric car, exactly. I gotta say though about the electric car, I have a Tesla. Um, I am happy to go to Tesla chargers, superchargers, I know they work, but there are so many other variables, right? Not every charger is a supercharger, even though it has the right connection. My favorite is there's this whole kit that allows me to plug it into my house without a supercharger, but it never works. Why? Because it requires a certain amount of amps going into your line. So even though the outlet looks right, it will pop the fuse, the circuit, every single time I try to charge it. So even where we think there's interoperability, and this is a perfect segue, there kind of always isn't interoperability. Which leads me to say, so you've got this group CSRI. Does that mean that, that like not every state 
has this HIE thing? And if so, what is the issue? It, clearly, the studies have demonstrated, you know, you both have came up with, come up with examples for why it's absolutely critical. So what's the deal? Uh, and Brian CSR just sits there laughing, saying, <laughs> I want to hear this one. Oh, yeah. No, I, okay, so let, let me, you threw a lot out there. So CSRI is a group that was um, formed by six of the largest, most capable uh, health information exchange organizations, largely to do anything and everything that we could think of to move the ball forward. Um, and uh, one of the things that we're trying to do is to promote uh, an idea we call um, a health data utility that every state should have a statewide health data utility that would do the kinds of things that HIEs have always done. Um, and uh, some things that uh, big capable organizations like ours are starting to do, uh, we wanna encourage that thinking in every, in every state and in the union, because to your point, um, there isn't a, a health information exchange in every market or every state. And um, that's, uh, it's bad um, in, in a number of ways, uh, just for, for people who, you know, we've been talking about this problem. If you have a, um, uh, so, so, so let, me, let, me, let me put a semicolon there. Um, because one of the things that I think is super interesting, Brian was talking about the VA system. You know, if you're all VA within the system, your exchange is pretty good. Uh, if you um, stay within a uh, like Epic to Epic exchange uh, is, is pretty good. So if we're only talking about getting health care, uh, that's um, kind of the state of things. So let me let me try to make two points and hopefully not too nuanced. One is that if we're just talking about health care, it's super interesting to contrast places like Indiana or Maryland or Arizona or Colorado where there's good health information exchange made uh, uh, um, via, via a not-for-profit health information exchange and contrast that with a place like Northern California, where I think there's pretty decent exchange. That's because uh, organizations there have doubled down on care equality and the capabilities of electronic health records and worked hard at inter-organizational exchange without a not-for-profit or statewide health information exchange. That gets complicated, but I just want to acknowledge if we're just talking about health care, then there are places where that gets done reasonably well, EHR to EHR um, or, uh, or via um, uh, frameworks like care equality, but there's also places where that gets done well via a health information exchange. Let me interrupt you for a second. So here yeah. I am in Pennsylvania, yeah. Where we do not have a health information exchange. You health have several. A health information exchange, right? Yes. Yes. And and Pennsylvania has been described as California on the edges and Alabama in the middle. So does that mean that Pennsylvania is fine? We don't need any more health information exchange for healthcare? Or does it mean something else? The CSRI view of that world would be that Pennsylvania. Well, this may be the Kansky version, so I don't want to. I don't want to get uh, uh, you know uh, call uh, the the Kansky version is that uh, Pennsylvania needs a statewide health data utility, um, which uh, and I know some of the people that run the health information exchanges uh, in Pennsylvania, um, and uh, they might explain why that can't be or can't be next year or shouldn't be. But from a philosophical standpoint, um, uh, 
Pennsylvania should have a statewide health data utility. Why? Because it isn't just about the point of care that we've been discussing. Maybe that's what the patient cares about. Uh, maybe in Philadelphia, um, uh, the uh, hospitals are reasonably well connected for um, uh, supporting uh, care episodes. I, I can't really speak to that. Um, but there's just so many needs for health data in a state within state government, for public health, for the Medicaid program, but also businesses, employers. They want to know how healthy their workforce is. Um, uh, there's just lots of reasons to have statewide curated secure health data, and it goes well beyond um, supporting the point of care. And I would, I would build on that too. So this concept of the health data utility that we're pushing, um, it really, so John, this is a brainchild of John Kansky's, right? So um, him and David uh, <clears throat> Horrocks from, from Maryland put their big brains together and came up with this, with this concept. And what we're pushing is that there's a maturity model to the health data utility um, uh, uh, concept that is really never achievable, but it is, but there are things that you can do uh, to move the ball down the field. And I'll, I'll, I'll point to a couple of, of different programs that we run here at Contexture. Um, so bear with me while I get a little technical. As we think about health and health care, um, there are some foundational uh, technologies and infrastructure that must be in place in order to ensure that you are matching patients appropriately, that you are connecting to the right endpoints, that you are gathering the right information and making the right relationships between patients and providers. That foundational infrastructure is also foundational to a number of other things. And I'll point to two that we work with here at Contexture. But I'm going to stop you for just a second. Don't lose your train of thought. I don't understand the whole patient piece. I've got a social security number. It's unique. Match me on my social security number. What's the problem? Come on, dudes. Aren't you guys paying attention to what's going on in this country? <laughs> uh, I'm laughing just on mute. Yes. Okay, there uh, it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, yeah, the, uh, there, there's a, a number of challenges with Social Security number. Um, one is it's voluntary for many people to provide it. So that's one thing. There are a good number of people in the country that don't have one. Um, what? Yeah. And they also get recycled over time as people die and then new people are born, their social security numbers get recycled. Um, so the social security number doesn't make for a good universal healthcare identifier for the US. We don't have a universal healthcare identifier like other countries that are further, honestly, they're further down the road in developing a health data utility than we are. Um, and some of them tend to be small countries, i.e., you know, populations of five or six million people, like the size of a state, uh, but the, not the size of the U.S. as a country. But you know, there uh, we 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 don't have universal healthcare identifiers, and there has been a reticence to endorse one and create one in the U.S. Yeah, I'll add. I'll add to, just to add to Brian's pile. Add. The transcription errors, uh, you can't depend on it because human yeah. beings can't type that many digits without screwing up. <laughs> um, and, and the fact that because of privacy, so many companies have uh, appropriate, I think appropriate policies that say we do not share social security numbers. Sorry, Brian, go ahead. 
No, 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 you're right. Those are two other very good reasons why social security never makes for a bad universal healthcare identifier. I, well, so I Reverend think... Dixon has explained this problem to all of us and preached beautifully. So Morgan, what were you saying? <laughs> Well, and and uh, from from somebody who spent more than a decade in healthcare operations, it is also standard operating procedure that if you don't give your social security number at that front desk, your default is four 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 or nine 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 nine. And so, if you look for fours and nines in in the interoperability space, it's there's going to be lots of them because that's how check-in procedures are trained. But jeez. I will, I will, um, I'll, I'll give you two examples of, of the health data utility maturity model here at Contexture. So one is this whole concept that the majority of healthcare costs are driven by things that aren't impacted by the healthcare system. We call that social determinants of health. So it's not your healthcare, but it's the things that happen to you as a person in your life that impact your health, education, poverty status, food desert, uh, food deserts, childcare, transportation, you name it. So at Contexture, we have a program that we call Community Cares. It is, It stands side by side with the health information exchange, and it's all about the social determinants of health. It's about gathering the same type of information and exchanging the same type of information on the social care side of things that leverages the same infrastructure as the health information exchange, those patient matching capabilities, the infrastructure to move data around. The other area that we uh, provide services to the state of Arizona is by managing the advanced directives registry. Again, same concept premise when you want to be able to make available data uh, documentation that needs to be tied directly back to a patient and available at the point of care when it's most necessary. And so if you kind of peel back these onion layers about what do you need in order to make this stuff work from a technical perspective? The underlying infrastructure really always comes back from, from my, from Morgan Honey's biased perspective, the, th the same type of technical functions that are required to run an effective health information exchange, patient matching, data storage, moving, you know, interfaces to different types of endpoints for, for different types of, uh, of technical platforms. Um, relationships with communities, relationships with providers. Um, don't underestimate the value of um, of contracting. Uh, contract once, provide many services. Um, and from my perspective, you know, that's the foundation of the HDU maturity model. We'll be back after this brief break. You're listening to Informatics in the Round. Welcome back to Informatics in the Round, a podcast about informatics for the rest of us. We've been discussing health information exchanges and the myth versus the reality of what is available. Now let's keep going and talk a little bit about the present and the future of this technology. So uh, I'm going to go back just a hair to some things that you said and, and recognize that I would say the average patient has no clue that their health data are being utilized in this way. 
um, you know, especially with uh, the politicization of healthcare privacy. And we've talked about that in a couple of other uh, podcasts recently uh, around the Dobbs decision and Roe v. Wade. I would say a lot of people don't have any clue that their healthcare data are being used outside of the healthcare system for things like businesses, social determinants of health, um, you know, statewide information. Um, they might to a little degree, maybe at aggregate levels, but what does that look like? Help an average patient understand what their data is doing and where it's going in these circumstances. Well, I think uh, I would start by uh, realizing that um, all of our data, on the one hand, we should strive as a country uh, to um, respect privacy and policies uh, to protect privacy appropriately. But I think we have to understand that in the world that we live in, there is a certain um, um, amount to uh, a degree to which our data is just going to be used for stuff, hopefully appropriately constructively. So sorry for, for that long setup. Um, ha I don't know if you've had this experience, but we're increasingly asked to sign documents electronically, financial documents, insurance documents. Yep. And and when I've been asked to do that and I have to prove who I am, um, it's astonishing what they know about you to be able to establish your identity. Have you ever lived at this address? Wow. Yeah. When I was in college, um, <laughs> have you ever bought property in this zip code? Yeah. 47 years ago. How did you know that? Um, so uh, the point being, I was glad to be able to confirm my identity, and I wouldn't want someone else to have been able to sign that document, uh, but there was a creative use of my data. Um, so there are always going to be humans um, who are going to just not want their data to be used for any reason. Um, I don't think that's appropriate, um, but I do think it's appropriate for us to have a reasonable amount of control and awareness of how our data is being used. So it's just the world we live in where the amount of data being generated by the second is just growing beyond the capacity of humans to comprehend. Um, uh, and we're trying to constructively and, and judiciously and fairly um, use it within um, laws and ethics. Okay, so we have all these data. Um, we have this idea of a of a um, utility or a hub, we have monkeypox. Has anybody been able to demonstrate being able to slow down the progression of monkeypox? Because this is, you know, this is what you think it's for, right? You have a public health threat, you have a limited vaccine supply, you've got this wonderful set of utilities, and maybe there's a few states who don't buy why you need it or not. What are you doing to combat monkeypox? Why, what's making that one harder? Is it, is it solved? So I wish I would have paid closer attention to that conference call this week um, <laughs> because I know the Department of Health has reached out to our organization specifically about monkeypox. Um, I'll use uh, the recent COVID experience, though, as, as an example of um, when you have, you know, the, the old Chinese proverb, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. Um, because of the health information infrastructure that exists in Indiana and existed prior to the pandemic, they were able, the Department of Health was able to say, first of all, um, we need all positive and negative testing data from one data stream, the Health Information Exchange. Um, and then when they, uh, then when we finally had vaccinations, 
um, they were able to say, here, I, hi, here's all the vaccination records, please make them available to the healthcare system. So um, uh, uh, healthcare providers can, through the health information exchange, be aware of their the patient's uh, immunization status. So that isn't a really direct answer to your question or a direct answer with from monkeypox experience, but I think it starts to demonstrate how the ability to, to having that infrastructure, um, infrastructure in every sense of the word, uh, of data exchange can help uh, prevent um, uh, not just communicable disease, but chronic uh, and, and daily healthcare. Let me give you an, another example. Um, so monkeypox is, is challenging for me because it's like Groundhog Day, right? I mean, it, it's, a, it's, a different, it's a different crisis, uh, but it's not uh, the, the same problems with COVID and all of the data exchange that we dealt with there, it's it's the exact same issue. But uh, one of the programs that we've been doing with the state of Colorado, to your point, Kevin, is when, so I'll use myself as an example. I got my COVID vaccine literally on the side of the road in, in uh, Clear Creek County, Colorado. Um, it was delivered as by- people in Colorado do. <laughs> it was it was it was through the public health department and they they had a roadside clinic set up at at a at a Colorado Department of Transportation you know salt silo um, and so me and my wife drove up to the mountains got a covid vaccine filled out the little piece of paper handed it to the person um, and and got shot right there on on the side of the road the fallacy with that process is that and I'm, I swear to God, I will get to your question, is that I can put anything on that piece of paper that I want, right? Like, it's just me sitting in my car filling this out. I can put any demographic, I could put any address, I could put anything in those boxes that I want. Um, with the health information exchange and the health data utility infrastructure, whatever I didn't put, or if I put something wrong, can be uh, verified using the the number of sources that we have for identity now here's here's my point is when you ask about have we seen impacts of using this technology yes the example is that in colorado at the beginning when vaccines or when COVID testing became available the public health department and and the healthcare community in general they could see how many people were being tested they could see um, how many people were being immunized but they didn't have a reliable source for seeing the details or verifying the details of who those people were. Where were they coming from? What did they look like? Um, and so one of the things that we did with the state was to take that information from the public health department and give them back additional information about race, gender, ethnicity, uh, location of residents so that our public health department could be more precise and where they were trying to outreach for testing and vaccinations, whereas otherwise they're just dealing with numerators and denominators of general population. And I, I would add that monkeypox illustrates why it's, it's, it's important to think about health data utilities as opposed to our previous notions of a health information exchange, because I think to John's point earlier, health information exchange notions of the past have been really focused on clinical care, connecting so that so that care providers can share information, but kind of didn't think really about the public health system. You know, monkeypox illustrates all those components of why it's important to think about health data utility as serving public health and government and, and social service and 
uh, clinical care all at the same time because when monkeypox, so first of all, the monkeypox diagnosis existed before the, the outbreak. So uh, from a diagnostic perspective, you could start to pick up on those in a, in a data infrastructure as Morgan illustrated. Tests though were only being done at the very beginning of this, were only being done by CDC and state health labs. Over time, right, we, you just saw a few weeks ago that Quest and LabCorp and the big major laboratories started to do this testing. So as the testing begins to ramp up, then you start having results that can flow through the system. Um, so if you didn't have any connection to state public health and 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 public health labs, then you wouldn't know about the testing that was going on in the very early days of the epidemic. Um, so it's important to, to recognize that we have to think holistically and make sure that our whole health system is connected to these entities so that you can um, pick up on the diagnosis. Same thing with immunizations. Immunizations tend to go into public health immunization registries in each state. So if those uh, are continue to be silos of information, which, you know, for the last 30 years, most of them have been silos within a state. They haven't really talked to one another. Forget healthcare for a minute. Like even the public health immunization registries don't really interoperate with each other and share information. And so as we're moving forward, that's one of the things public health is, is wrestling with is how do we enable you know, exchange, because if you live in Chicagoland or you live in New York City, you've got people who live in multiple states in your metropolitan area. And so only having New York's, you know, New York State Immunization Registry for people who have an address in New York probably wouldn't help New York City very much. You know, one of the things you said there that's really fascinating is the need for the hub is that despite what John just said about you know, finding an address for the house that you purchased 40 years ago, there are firewalls that prevent the same state from being able to use data that are literally sitting in the same office sometimes on different servers. Mm -hmm. um, because you'd think, for example, there was a, somebody called me last week and said, regarding monkeypox, I had the smallpox, smallpox vaccine when I was a child. Am I protected? So I went to the CDC website and I read some things. And then it occurred to me that if it were true, wouldn't we be getting some information from our state that said there is this outbreak, good news, you're covered? I gather that that's virtually impossible in most states right now. By the way, smallpox vaccine has not been shown for those of us who have had one more than 10 years ago to be really clearly protective hmm. about against monkeypox. So I wanted to make sure I got that clear, but wouldn't you have thought that there would be a way to have that communication proactively because you have these two databases? And I believe the answer is no, there actually isn't a way. Is that right? Well, not only is, is um, what, this, you're making me think of, of something that we haven't really talked about clearly, which is policy barriers, um, which is to, to your point, um, while there are databases that are being shared that uh, Americans are not aware of, maybe in the financial industry, um, there are databases uh, that are not being shared sometimes because there's a simple policy within, for example, state government that says we can't share that. Believe it or not, um, uh, that was a big deal during the pandemic was many health information exchanges, despite their missions and what they did within their, within their state, 
um, could not convince the state health department to share the immunization records with the health information exchange. It's what we call a policy barrier. They just, they have it. They could technologically share it, but for whatever reason, their policy was we don't or can't. Amazing. The, sa the same thing is true at the VA. So any, any vaccines given by the VA, there's federal policy that prevents them from sharing that immunization record with the state immunization registry, the, the state department of health, which is ludicrous in 2022 from my perspective that we still have this. There are efforts to change that, but that's another example of a policy that's been on the books for decades that pre literally prevents the sharing of data, even though technologically we can make it happen. Well, so why, even, is... why even collect the data if we already have these, you know, firewalls in place that prevent the use of the data and the use cases that we can all imagine as, you know, lay people consenting for this stuff. Well, my, my answer to that one is uh, if you ever have an opportunity to collect the data within within constraints, even if they're too tight, collect the data because, you know, policies can change uh, and and opportunities to build the uh, infrastructure or build the path to, to uh, getting the data and coding it and making it useful. Even for one or two things, you can use it for three or four things later. Uh, the, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's just uh, the, the policy barriers are, are perhaps the most, the most frustrating. I, I, this may be going too deep, but um, I'll call it out real quickly is behavioral health data is incredibly <laughs> important. Um, and because they're, the federal government protects that data differently than it protects all other healthcare data, um, the, the unintended consequences of that, I'm oversimplifying, is that organizations that provide behavioral health uh, uh, care often are just left out of the uh, information exchange ecosystem uh, to the detriment of patients and society. So um, what seemed like a good policy, because it seemed like protecting that information was especially important, just making a different set of rules. Uh, we spent the last uh, uh, health information exchanges and, and healthcare providers and others have tr has spent a decade trying to get the federal government to harmonize HIPAA with the different rules that protect that information so that it could be more of an ecosystem that functions. And I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to pick on John just a little bit here um, because I can. He's a long ways away from me. Um, the there's also policy interpretation, and so what John just said is behavioral health information. It's actually not behavioral health information. It's substance use information, which is largely provided by the behavioral health system. Um, but if you've got the interpretation by behavioral health providers that everything is covered under 42 CFR Part 2, which is the privacy policy that covers substance use data, um, then you've got a, a huge portion of the healthcare ecosystem with incredibly important information at their fingertips that says, I'm sorry, everything I do is covered under this different policy. So uh, you just brought up a good point about um, who's protecting it. Do you think that sometimes some of this information is withheld or or not exchanged because it helps protect them from liability? Um, there's uh, sometimes it's liability. It, it's, it's sometimes it's the perception of liability or real liability. Sometimes it's the perception of what they think. I, I don't think I'm allowed to share this. Well, but you are. You just don't understand the rules. Um, and in the darkest hour, uh, there's competitive reasons um, that I really just prefer not to share this data because I don't um, want to help you. Yeah. Now, 
that's what led to uh though gosh let's not talk about information blocking um but um i i don't think i brought it up there john oh did, was that my out loud voice i believe it was <laughs> oh, oh sorry <laughs> There's a perception that, that there are organizations that don't really want to share their data. I'm sure there are those. Uh, we now have federal regulation aimed at that problem that I'm not a big fan of trying to, to uh, fix that with regulation. But um, uh, in general, I think organizations are trying to share data. Um, uh, they're not trying not to share data. And I wanna go back real quick since you brought up HIPAA. Which stands uh, for what, by the way? Which one are you want to take that? Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, but that does not help you understand what it is. <laughs> yeah. uh, we covered we covered it in a previous podcast. If we'll, go back and listen to the episode with Brad Malin and Ellen Clayton, and you'll hear a lot about HIPAA, privacy yeah. and security. And um and and so uh, because we've talked about it on this podcast before. You know, people are probably assuming, oh my gosh, my HIPAA, y'all are violating HIPAA by sharing this data. Um, and we keep saying this data, this data, or these data. Uh, are we sharing or are you sharing row level or patient level information data that would uh, violate HIPAA? Or is there still a privacy protection there when we're sharing data amongst different organizations? Oh, there's absolutely privacy protections, and none of us could do what we do without uh, complying uh, not only with HIPAA um, privacy and security rules, but any and all regulations in our state. At a, so um, we take that stuff extremely seriously. And you know, and HIPAA is is uh, after oh my gosh, uh, HIPAA privacy was 2003. The law was passed in 1996. As a country, we've kind of figured out how to live. Under HIPAA, in a way that allows the healthcare system to function and respect privacy. Now, the the funny thing is, and now this is your fault, um, is is um, the way that I explain information blocking is is it's the bookend to HIPAA. So we now have a, a federal regulation in this country that says to healthcare providers and others, um, if you share information when you're not supposed to, you get in trouble. And now we have a regulation in information blocking that says. If you don't share information when you are supposed to, you get in trouble. So, uh, I mean, as if healthcare wasn't uh, uh, regulated enough, now everybody has to operate somehow between those two uh, guardrails. Oh, it's actually worse than that, right? I mean, HIPAA, HIPAA protects covered entities. So the other part of that situation is there's this third guardrail, which is a cliff with no guardrail, which is if you patient were foolish enough to think that the data that you gave some random company is protected, you're in trouble. <laughs> yes, yes. What 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 Kevin is saying is important. Okay, I got one. There it is. Okay, so let me ask a question. Another question here. So, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna date myself by saying one of my favorite scenes in any movie for the last twenty years was Tom Cruise in Minority Report where he's walking through the mall. You guys remember this? And there's all these targeted ads, which by the way are very reminiscent now of every experience, every experience I ever have on Facebook. But as he's walking through and it's saying things like, hey there, whatever your name is, your size 10 and a half Timberlands are in stock, right? So I fully imagined the day when we were gonna be able to use Health Information Exchange, um, walk into the doctor's office, 
and have some kind of a screen or a headset or something where it says things like, um, you're behind on this vaccine, and the hospital doesn't have to deal with it. The, the, the health system kind of allows this. Or um, did you know that the water, the brown water that you were exposed to back in 2022, or the high levels of toxic uh, chemicals that were found in your water in Flint, Michigan, now can be treated with some new X, Y, or Z medicine, please call this number or click this button to find out. I fully expected that we would have a public health infrastructure that could actually be predictive and preventive. Are we even heading close to that, Brian, as one of the world's experts in public health infrastructures? Uh, we've only taken baby steps in that direction. You know, we really, we don't, uh, we haven't invested in the preventative side of all of this the way that we should have, right? So um, really the focus has been more on, you know, provider to provider exchange and, you know, especially in acute care situations. Um, we do now have though, and Morgan and, and John may be able to talk about some specific examples. We do have some elements of what you described that happens. So for example, you know, we, we do have instances where you know, public health can, uh, we have instances where public health can identify a, a population um, of interest and look more into them, not necessarily contact them and say, like, you were exposed to this 20 years ago. We're not quite there yet. Um, but we can look at populations. We, we can, on the research side, we use the data to identify uh, individuals that might be eligible for a trial. So to your point, we, we do now have some instances where we can identify people who might benefit from some new treatment that's coming out. Um, we also can use the data to identify individuals who might be behind on their, on their vaccines. Uh, that happens um, as, as more and more vaccine registries have both adults and children in them. For a long time, we were prioritizing children, um, but now adults are being added to the mix and we can say things like, hey, you're due for this. Um, so we are, we, we have made, I would say, some baby steps in this direction, but there's a lot more we can do uh, and could do with health data utilities that we couldn't necessarily do with just an HIE that served the primarily clinical uh, organizations in the community. Wow. And Brian, I think, did, didn't, weren't you involved in some of the pioneering work on surveillance as well? Yes. So from a surveillance perspective, yeah, we, we have made great strides. But I think what Kevin's getting at, which is the which is the next step, which is you walk in and they're like, hey, you're due for this. Like we have we've done projects on that where we can, uh, you know, have, for example, a medical assistant, you know, review your records with you and say, hey, you're you're due for this uh, like third dose of the HPV vet. HPV vaccine while you're in today, would you like to go ahead and get that done? We've done that in some pilot work, but we don't have, we haven't operationalized that across the health system. Well, when you say we, do you mean you in Indiana or do you mean the United States? Both. Like we haven't actually, you know, operationalized it, uh, it, it more, in more than one sort of like health setting, right? So we have some very, we've done some very interesting work, but it hasn't quite, you know, scaled. Surveillance has scaled. The preventative side, though, remains in pockets. And that, I think, 
is both an exciting opportunity for us, but also to Kevin's point, I think it's something we need to recognize is something we we haven't really attended to to this point. Well, and I'm I'm going to continue to be the provocateur. So to to go back to Kevin's example, the reason that you get those targeted ads on Facebook is because the the people selling the product pay to have it placed there and with the anticipation that you're going to buy something. So the the real issue that we're talking about here in as it translates to healthcare is until there are financial incentives and a business model that can be applied to actually making that type of functionality worthwhile to the people who are providing those services, either the health data utility or the health system itself, until the financing mechanism changes to incentivize those types of services being, you know, being put out there, Morgan, you need your immunization, Morgan, you need your follow-up, then the finance, the financing is backwards and it's not the same as as the targeted ad on Facebook. Well, and this could be the topic for a future podcast. If value-based care really becomes uh, the way we pay for healthcare in the United States, for the first time in a hundred years, the providers and public health would be on the same financial side. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, my other vision, here's my own. So some of you know that I was a part of the health information exchange in Southwestern Tennessee called the Mid-South eHealth Alliance. And we had this vision, my, my use case that I wanted to demonstrate. When we first came up, we noticed that there were patients who had multiple ED visits, emergency department visits, scattered in time and space. And we decided to look to see whether we could see evidence of non-accidental trauma patterns. Because one of the ways in which you might expect a woman who is being abused by a spouse to present is that they went to one ED with one thing, another ED with another thing, so that nobody could figure out that there's a pattern. And in fact, we found some. At the time, we were not able to ever recontact. Talk to me about that. I mean, these are my tax dollars. I would, I'd love to be recontacted for things that a public health environment could tell me about my health or my children's health. Um, are we, to your point about policy, is there a general willingness, excitement about being able to use health information exchange in the way I just described, or is it totally a pipe dream and there's just too many people and too many policies that would have to change for that to happen? Uh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to take that hot potato and it is a hot potato. It's all potato. I'm about, baby, is hot potatoes. But I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what, in a very contemporary topic in a post-Roe era um, is the idea of using uh, healthcare data for law enforcement um, is a slippery slope and a little uncomfortable. Well, I mean, ideally, you know, instead, I, I would like, I would say there is excitement for public health people are very excited about the opportunities for health data utilities and, and, and health information exchange writ large, because, because there are many of them, you know, Public health often administers the, the WIC program, the women, infants, and children's programs. They, they, they uh, operationalize nutrition-based programs. Uh, they work with other entities in state government and social care organizations to, to provide a safety net. And so they would love, uh, and they're excited about the opportunities to get people to re- connected to the resources that they need. So I'll put it that way. So I, I do think, you know, Morgan alluded to this earlier when talking about the social determinants of health, or as we're now calling them, the structural determinants of health, to, to 
identify populations that would benefit from the services that are available in their community and get them connected to those. I think there's a real desire to do that. I think that for many of the reasons that we've talked about, it, that it's been it's been challenging. Again, there have been some efforts to move in that direction. It's happening to a small degree in some places, but I do think that that potentially exists. Maybe not necessarily to sort of say, based on your profile, we think that you're being abused, um, because it it can be very hard to you know uh, there's a, that's a trickier situation. Um, to reach out to that person because you also don't want to put them in jeopardy by alerting people around them that that they may be in danger. Um, but for you know connecting individuals who are in food deserts to food-based resources or food pantries in their area, or connecting individuals who might benefit from a you know tobacco cessation program in their community uh, and help them get connected to that, there's a lot of interest. And, and hope that that's the direction we're moving towards as we build things like health data utilities. That's great, thank you. I feel better now. Um, <laughs> well, I wanna get us wrapped up here. This has been incredibly informative. Um, I just wanna give everybody a chance to sort of give us that final piece of information that they wanted to make sure the audience knew about this topic. Before we do that, I think I'm gonna ask ST if she has any questions she wants to make sure we address. I wonder if you guys have, have often thought about, is there a point where maybe we go too far in prevention or surveillance that we do need to be careful about? You know, the police thing um, is, is a good idea, but also does it take away people's choice in being able to uh, want certain services or not um, and being surveilled? Well, um, in general, I would just call on um, uh, listeners to... Um, uh, being able to uh, have information about you shared is in your best interest, the best interest of quality healthcare, the best interest of, uh, of your communities, public health. Um, and so um, try to resist paranoia because people are trying to, to, do, to do the right thing. Um, and uh, that's not to say that um, people in our business don't need to guard against and uh, advocate for policy um, that prevents weird, creepy things from happening with information. But don't be the, um, uh, it, it's in your best interest for your information to be available to those making uh, care decisions about you. Well stated. Yeah. Morgan? Um, I would just build on what John just said. I mean, I think y you have, you have the framework, the policy framework of HIPAA and other privacy policies that govern the way that this whole ecosystem works. But you also have the Hippocratic Oath that every medical professional um, has taken as well, and that is do no harm. And I, I think that we all uh, approach this work through that same lens of um, we're here to do good um, and and to do no harm uh, within the policy framework and and for the the. Uh, one thing I can guarantee you is that everybody who works in this industry is here for the mission um, uh, to try to improve the healthcare ecosystem in general, because we recognize that there's plenty of opportunity for that. And as a patient, you know, I 
emphatically opt in every time that uh, I take my kids to the doctor or my wife goes or I go um, or have to sign a new disclosure. I'm, I'm emphatic and I go so far as to thank the providers for, for being a part of, of the health information exchange. Very cool. Brian, you have the last word. <laughs> I would say that, you know, our conversation today has largely been in the American context. Um, we've been talking about states and, and the nation, and, and that's important. That probably touches most of our listeners because they live in the U.S. But I would say that these same conversations are happening around the world, and there are a number of countries that have HIE networks that are mature and robust, and several of them that probably meet our definition of health data utility. And so as we move forward as a country, I would also say we can look to some examples that are outside the U.S. for some guidance and maybe some partnership and collaboration to sort of say, hey, how did you address this issue? Maybe we can learn from that because other countries are trying to learn from their nearest neighbors in different continents um, as they move forward, both with the introduction of health IT in general, uh, and then they want to get to interoperability shortly thereafter. You know, we started this off with some discussion about um, my husband having COVID pneumonia in Barcelona. And you're bringing up the most important piece of this, which is the idea that we should always be thinking globally, even if we're acting locally, so that we can get to a port place where, with the world being as small as it is, you don't have to worry about the fact that you're someplace else, your information should be available. So this has been very informative. Uh, thanks, everybody, a lot for this. One final request from one of you, any one of you, I need one good joke about Health Information Exchange. I got nothing. There's got to be one that starts with like two patients walk into a doctor's office, but I, I don't have the punchline. No, Morgan, anything? ST? No, I got nothing for you. What a bunch of geeks. <laughs> <laughs> Nerds. Yeah, right. I, could, right. I could tell you a joke about just about anything else in the world, but not, not, not health information exchange. Yeah. All this the jokes. Is no, that this is no laughing matter, Kevin. There it is. There it is. That's a joke. <laughs> okay, everybody. Well, thanks a lot. This has been terrific. Thank you for listening. Incidentally, if you're interested in seeing some of this discussion and not just hearing about it, check out our Facebook site or our TikTok channel or our YouTube channel where we've put some of the tastiest bits for public consumption. Good stuff, I think. By the way, we've got a couple of great topics queued up, so please stay tuned. Till next time, stay well, get your booster, and keep a positive outlook on life. Science, it'll cure what ails you.